Hello and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church meeting in the Los Feliz area of Los Angeles. We're the kind of Christians who like the Bible a lot, but we're not going to thump you with it. We believe in the world-changing power of Jesus and the present-day work of the Holy Spirit to change things. Right now, the whole world is in a process of adapting to new realities, and so are we. Building community and sharing all this love and power suddenly seems like it might become a bit more challenging. But really, how lucky are we that we're facing all this in the 21st century? Throughout the duration of this new world coronavirus order, we'll be doing all of church online, but we're not afraid. We worship a God who is bigger than all of this, who's seen it all before, and will work all things together for the good of those who love him. We love you, and we're here. Stay in touch and enjoy this podcast. So despite what you may have heard, it's today, not Friday, that is at the beating, living heart of the Christian faith. Now, the cross, of course, is vital, but Christianity fundamentally is not about death. It is about life, and it always has been. The cross actually only became a symbol for Christianity about 400 years after Jesus' resurrection. Before that, the symbols that Christians used were ones of new life. The butterfly, life coming out of the tomb of a cocoon, or the phoenix, Jesus, rising from the ashes, or the peacock, who regenerates its feathers longer and more beautiful and more vibrant every time it loses them. Because Christianity is not about death. It's about resurrecting hope-filled, glorious, wondrous, miraculous, affirming, bodily, real, eternal life. And isn't that good? The resurrection is the whole shebang. As our theologian friend N.T. Wright puts it, it is the irreducible minimum of Christianity. Now, various figures appeared on the first century Jewish scene after Jesus, claiming like him to be the Messiah. But do you know at what point all real interest in them ceased? When they died. Who cares much about Simon Bar Kokhba or Moses of Crete or Abu Issa now? Thought about any of those guys recently? Because without the resurrection, Jesus is just one amongst many teachers with some interesting things to say about life, but you can kind of take him or leave him. With the resurrection, though, he is something quite different. As the early Christian writer Paul puts it, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Because the resurrection is everything. Because life is everything. It's the most precious thing in the whole universe, and Christianity is about life forever and ever and ever. And it's why the resurrection is worthy of all our attention. Now, if you're a cynic, or if you're sceptical, or you're not sure what you think about the Christian claims, I can tell you I can relate. I am a cynic about more or less everything in life. It's so tiring for my poor wife, who seems to be becoming more and more optimistic and American by the day. But I, as I've always said, I'm British. It's my job to be pessimistic. You know, I think it's sort of our role in the world. Where do you go when you need some withering doubt about life? The British. What we're for. It's written into our constitution. Do we have a constitution? I don't know. Anyway, the point is, if you're a cynic, 
or you're unsure, nevertheless, you've got to check it out, the evidence. As one person put it, if you received a letter in the mail, imagine this. A letter comes in the mail and it's from a lawyer's firm and it's got their letterhead and it says you have inherited millions and millions of dollars. Now, I know there are lots of scams around, particularly at the moment. In fact, just yesterday, I got an email from Google saying, am I really trying to access my account from Vietnam? Which reminds me, I have to change my password from Eddie Teddy Bear one It's just that it's so memorable and easy to put in. Anyway, the point is, you get this letter and it's not an email, it's not a social media scam, and it looks at least a little bit legit, and you're going to inherit millions and millions of dollars. You would at least look into it, wouldn't you? Because the implications are extraordinary. So with that in mind, let us hear again the story. We'll hear it in two parts. Here's the first, John chapter 20, from 1 to 10, read by Adam. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. I'm sorry about Adam. He was the only one we could get at late notice. Them's the breaks. Apologies. But anyway, the other disciple that is mentioned here but isn't given a name is quite likely John, the source behind John's Gospel, and he may even be the author. And what John wants us to know is that he is fast at running, but he's humble. So he's not going to name himself, but if you know that it's him, you know, and you know now that he's fast. Actually, what he really wants you to know is that he was there and what he saw was Peter run into the tomb. Slow coach Peter, once he'd finally caught up, verse 6, saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. But the word used for saw in the Greek is not the normal word. The normal word is blepo. And in fact, John has used it just previously in the verse before to describe him, him seeing things, blepo. But Peter doesn't blepo see things. He theoreo sees things, which is where we get our word theory from. And the point is this. Peter is speculating. He is weighing up what he sees in his mind. He is theorizing about it. And presumably what he's theorizing is, if these were grave robbers who have stolen the body, why on earth did they leave behind the actual uh, expensive stuff, the linen and the spices, makes no sense. Or if it was other disciples who've taken the body in order to fake a resurrection, why did they defile it by taking it away naked rather than wrapped up? He is criticizing the evidence available to him. 
And of course, on that latter point, the idea that the disciples stole the body to fake a resurrection. From our perspective later in history, we might add a few things. Firstly, one, belief in the resurrection at all was only held by a few Jewish people, not everyone. And it was always about a mass resurrection for everyone all at one point. No one believed in a single resurrection of one person. So the idea that the disciples faked something that neither they nor anyone else previously believed was even a possibility is highly unlikely. Secondly, at the entrance of the tomb, there was stationed a Roman guard who, one, were very good at uh, guarding things and two, were highly armed. So the disciples, on the other hand, were leaderless, disillusioned and scared witless, and they were as such in no shape to overpower anyone, let alone trained representatives of the most powerful force on earth. Thirdly, as a matter of history, we know that all the disciples, bar one, were martyred for their belief in the resurrection. So it doesn't stack up to believe that they all willingly went to their death for something they knew beyond a doubt was not true because they were the ones who made it up in the first place. And fourthly, Jesus' teaching, as well as the disciples' own teaching, which we can read for ourselves in the New Testament, is big on telling the truth. It tells us 187 times that Jesus is the truth, Christianity is the truth, and it exhorts Christians to tell the truth in all circumstances. So to base the whole thing on a massive, enormous whopper of a lie is extremely inconsistent. But Peter doesn't just look in and then straight away believe. He theorizes and he considers and he speculates because Christian faith is not blind. It's not wishful thinking or some sort of escape for those who can't face the stark realities of life and choose to believe in fairy stories or unicorns or a mystical man who magically rose from the dead. The truth is we all, Christian or not, have faith all the time and we put it in various things, be that stock markets, governments, life partners, shoe choices or quibby. Now quibby is definitely not going to work, is it? You can take it from me, a middle-aged dad, I know. But Christian faith is just the same. It is based on the available historical evidence. It goes beyond rational argument, of course but it is never ever without it. So, let's carry on with the story. More Adam. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. She didn't realise that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. 
And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That's the last of Adam. So Mary Magdalene, around whom the rest of the story focuses, is an interesting character, and we will come back to her at the end. But firstly, verse 12, Jesus was really dead. His body had been there. Now, my father passed away a few years ago after a really difficult and kind of drawn-out decline as he suffered from dementia. I was with him in the morning, and then I drove back uh, to our house in London, and on the way I got a call from my mum and my dad saying that he had passed. And I sat on our sofa, and I cried, and I cried for quite a time. And then I got back in the car and drove back to the care home where he was and walked in. And I don't know if you've ever seen a dead body before, but it's quite an eerie sort of experience. It's just a sort of lifeless, soulless, joyless, empty physical thing because life has gone. Now, I know that my dad is alive forever and I will meet him again. But that picture of this empty body, it's always sort of stayed with me. It's like it's not what it's supposed to be. And Jesus' body must have looked very similar. Because on the cross, all death and all evil for all history, past, present and future, all the broken, corrupted selfishness of humankind, all the weight of personal, corporate and cosmic sin, all death pummeled itself onto Jesus' body, ravaging and ripping him apart, robbing him of life, sucking the breath out of him and snuffing out all the goodness and light and leaving an empty, lifeless corpse. And he's down and he's out for the count. Broken crushed and breathless. But then, three days later, he gets up, he looks death straight in the eye and says, is that all you've got? There's this uh, beautiful kind of small description in Matthew's account, which I've always loved and I've always of wanted to talk about whenever I talk about the resurrection because I just find it so lovely. It's this, that the stone is rolled away and then Matthew says the angel sits on the stone. And I like to think as that angel sat there that he is just maybe swinging his legs on top of it slowly back and forth just to sort of say, I moved this. Because what that stone represents is final ending death, no entry, the end. It represents you'll never amount to anything. This is who you are. Your past will be with you forever. You're a failure. You're an embarrassment. You're damaged goods. There's no hope for you. And the angel rolls the stone away. He sits his backside on it and he swings his legs and he says, not anymore. You see, the resurrection isn't just for Jesus, it's for us. And for the first time in many of our lifetimes, our world is in crisis. 
No one knows what's on the other side of this thing, but everyone does seem to agree that on the other side, the world will not remain as it was. And understandably, that brings fear and anxiety and worry and loneliness and depression and heartache. And of course, none of us are immune to any of that either. But at the same time, what an opportunity. Because what the world needs now, and of course has always needed, is not wishful thinkers or positive mental attitude activists, but resurrection people. People whose hope is in the historic, universe-altering resurrection power of the Son of the Most High God, Jesus Christ, alive in glorious eternal life. He is risen. Now, the whole culmination of John's Gospel has been leading to this point, and specifically verse 22, and with that, Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is what everyone has been waiting for in the drama of this book. It's the climax of the story and the ministry of Jesus. Because in the first chapter, John the Baptist has announced, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptise with the Holy Spirit. In chapter 3, Jesus is the one person that God has given the Spirit without measure, and it's a, like a flowing, living spring inside him, a source of life and refreshment and renewal, and it's the same Spirit that Jesus explicitly promises his disciples. Before his death, he reassures them. He will ask the Father, and the Father will send the Spirit, the Advocate, the Spirit of Truth, who will teach them everything and will empower them and anoint them. And so now, now it's happening. Now that same Spirit, suggested throughout his ministry, promised to the disciples before Calvary, enabled through his death and resurrection, is finally here for everyone. Peace be with you, Jesus says. This is more than just a greeting. This is Jesus announcing the reality of his kingdom where all striving ceases. Peace is the shalom of God, where justice and mercy and goodness reign, where people aren't trying to make a name for themselves because they already know exactly who they are, resurrection people. It's the opposite of all earthly expressions of city or nation or kingdom where the mantra is, what can you do for me? Here in the peace of God's kingdom, the mantra is, my life to serve you. The weak are strong, the lowly are raised up. Finally, back to Mary Magdalene. History has been fascinated by her. Various fantastical theories have been concocted and posited about her. But the truth is, we actually don't know that much about Mary Magdalene. What we do know, though, is that she was the first person to see the resurrected Jesus. All four Gospels agree on this, even the Gospel of Peter which doesn't make it into the Bible because it's highly spurious and it also happens to be barking mad. It actually features a walking, talking cross, like something from a terrible Christian Disney movie. But even in it, even in the Gospel of Peter, which you should never read, it's weird, in line with all the reputable Gospels, Mary Magdalene is the first witness of the resurrected Lord, presumably because this was such common knowledge amongst everyone at the time that it would be ridiculous not to include it. The other thing we know about Mary Magdalene is that when Jesus first meets her, he delivers her from seven demons. So this is a woman who is troubled by demons. She does have some social standing, but as a woman, in her time, her testimony would have had no legal weight to it at all. And God chooses this woman 
to be the first witness of the most important moment that has ever happened in the history of the universe. And he chooses her because this is what he is like, what he's always been like and always will be like. He chooses the unlikelies. He chooses the forgotten, those who think they're not up to much, those whom society has said no to. He picks them, he picks them up in his arms, he breathes on them, filling them with his spirit, and he says, when you're weak, I am strong, I am the resurrected one, and I am resurrecting everyone who looks to me. Peace be with you, let my kingdom rule on earth. This is the Christian faith. He is risen. Hallelujah. Happy Easter. I was torn, you You redesign the title and red You take the broken and destroyed, and you rebuild, and you make hope. So joy, begin to rise, and hope, begin to light the dark. I got exchanges of for Change.